Are you happy? Are you deep down satisfied with the person you are, how you're living your life, and the future as it appears today? Do you have a passion? Is there any one thing in your life that is so important that it makes prioritizing everything else simple? If the answer to any of those questions is no, do you have any idea why? Welcome to the Vera Moore Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Dawn Keegan, co-founder of the dating app Veramore and the nonprofit app Hero Harbor. Happiness, mine and that of others, is something that's always been very important to me. I've devoted my life to understanding how we take the things life throws at us and combine that with our own special gifts to come away with an experience that, while not always perfect, is one we are proud of and allows us the fewest regrets and least amount of heartache. Whether through my personal musings or conversations with guests, the aim here is not to find a one-size-fits-all to-do list of change, but instead a mindset that lessens our fear, reduces judgment of ourselves and others, and frees each individual to build the life that truly represents happiness for them. Welcome, Dr. Wang, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Before we get started, I want to share with our listeners a couple of things that struck me from your story and your book and why I feel it's so, your story has so much to offer. Of course, I grew up here in America, and one of the things that, the biggest thing that struck me is you grew up in what sounds like probably one of the most challenging times that China has has seen, and you overcame and you experienced things and you now appreciate things that here in America, not only do we take for granted, but things, some things that people actively avoid. The, the first thought was, of course, we can we just take for granted that we can travel and live anywhere in the US that we want if we want to go from city to city state to state nobody questions that we just go where we want and so that's the first thing i considered that we take for granted but the other thing was you struggled so hard for your education and how many people here cannot wait to get out of school? Why do I need an education? Why is this important? And, um, again, I was just so struck by the things that we take for granted and sometimes don't even think are important, and yet you fought so hard for them. Um, so that's, that was just – those were the first things that came to mind in, in reading your story. So – Feel free. I would like now to, for you to tell your story any way that you like. Well, first of all, thank you, Don, again, for the opportunity to be on your show. And, um, you know, I, I spend every day taking care of uh, patients who have uh, eyesight problems. And uh, I come to realize that the people who really, truly appreciate sight are those who are blind. And because human nature is such that when we do have something, we tend not to appreciate it. 
Right. And we only begin to realize something being precious once we no longer have it. Right. So people who truly appreciate sight are those who are blind. And therefore, people who truly appreciate freedom, the freedom that we have in America, the freedom that you talked about just now, uh, tends to be those folks who used to not have freedom, such as myself, uh, struggling and surviving China's cultural revolution in the 1960s and 70s, not having the freedom then. So my overall overarching theme of uh, I present a talk to at churches, at the schools, at um, universities, and uh, to, you know to, to 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 share my experience of once not having the freedom, uh, the suffering, and to really bring up the point that to share with everyone in America today who do have freedom and how precious sight is and how precious freedom is. It's almost like um, someone who used to be blind and come in front of a group of folks who have sight and to tell them that how precious sight is. I'm someone who used to not have freedom and now come in front of uh, folks that who who do have freedom and to uh, you know share how precious freedom is. Right. Yeah, and uh, sometimes you know I see many things happening in our country, America. You know, uh, some students are not as motivated, want to work hard, and uh, you know some 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 taking for granted the things happening in their lives, and even including some people, you know didn't grow up with the right circumstance, the difficulty, and they just hold grudges and they become negative and doesn't want to try anymore, just want to give up. And uh, I want to say to all of these students that I used to suffer. I used to come from having nothing. Number one, I didn't give up. I didn't become negative. I just hold grudges against the society and blame on everybody else, I've learned to turn the negative into positive. And uh, I, my life experience taught me that that we, we, we should really truly appreciate what we have today in America. So that's my, uh, I just recently published the, um, Um, autobiography uh, from darkness to sight mm-hmm. and uh, the point of that book is to encourage you know to encourage young people today to read uh, my life stories to feel the pain and suffering of another youngster who at another time who had so much less uh, who, who who have so much less but yet have suffered so much more. Right. And who at the teenage years was thrown to the bottom of society, losing everything. And uh, fought against that, came to this country with only $50, who didn't become a negative human being, didn't stop blaming everybody else, but remained positive, remained hopeful, and uh, worked hard, and who could still make it. You know, little Johnny, little Nancy, in this country, students should be able to make it. Right. 
Johnny, Johnny, Johnny realized that uh, he has the freedom to go to school, the freedom to be educated. There's well, the freedom that I, that I didn't have in communist China during Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 1970s, a freedom that's still not available, actually, in so much part of the world, even today. You well, know, do you remember the 15, 15-year-old, the Pakistan young lady who got shot uh-huh. in the head by, by Taliban, and all she wanted to do was yeah. to go to school. Yeah. What I found was so amazing, and what was what might be... Uh, uh, just here we hold education as so important and you know prior to this cultural revolution in China and I want to go I want to have you don't if you don't mind go back and explain a little bit about that because it was new to me too I I I was not really familiar with it Um, and I'm I'm just a little younger than you are I I just turned 50 Um, but I'm not younger (laughs) the um here, you know, we value education so much, and it sounds like prior to the Cultural Revolution there, that that was the same. I mean, you come from an educated family, and education was valued, but what was so hard to grasp is that during this time that you speak of, and that it it was like opposite day. I mean, every the entire it, in, everything was turned upside down, and um, Chairman Mao was he was against education and so the people you talk about in your book that i believe you referred uh you said that they referred to as the ninth class and lower than anyone who had an education anyone who was a teacher a professor who um you know had was you know we here we look at you know, people who do menial labor, um, you know, garbage collectors or sometimes, you know, we look at, the, you know, for us, for narrow-minded people, you know, that those are the people that we look down at. And yet your upside-down world at that time, those were the people who were supposed to be, um, you know, held in esteem. And, and the education that we worked so hard for was considered, you know, awful and, you know, to be, um, and people actually died because of um, their education and such. That's right. That's right. And uh, it's a very, you're right, I grew up in a family uh, near Shanghai, China, and I was born in 1960. And so prior to 1966, um, you know, the, the family life was very quiet. We were an atheist family. We did, that means we did not believe in mm-hmm. God. We believe in only education. Um, I remember as a kid, dad used to, my mom's a teacher. My dad is a uh, family practitioner. I have a younger brother. So four of us. And uh, when I was a kid, dad used to tell me, he said, me, if you can master mathematics, physics, and chemistry, you can go anywhere in the world. So, so it was in a family that focused on education, and actually, you know, just following the Confucius um, uh, teaching, the philosophy that scholarship is above everything else. The knowledge, the education is above everything else. So it was in a family that focused singularly focused on education. Education was everything. When in 1966 disaster occurred, 
the China's Cultural Revolution or Cultural Holocaust. Right. You know, the, 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 the communist government just decided that the best way to keep on governing is to keep people ignorant. The best way to keep people ignorant is to actually destroy, destroy the educational process of all the students of the entire nation in Thai China. So they shut down all universities and colleges of the entire country and forcefully deported, deported every single junior high, senior high graduate to the poorest part of the country and condemned each one of us a life sentence of hard labor and abject poverty. And by which I mean earning few dollars a month, right. not a day, a right. month, few dollars a month for the rest of your life. If any of us dare to escape back to the city from the labor camp, we could be jailed or killed. Right. They destroyed the future through 10 years of cultural revolution or cultural holocaust from 1966 to 1976. They destroyed the future of 20 million young people, 20 million. Mm-hmm. So 1974, I was 14 years old. I finished my ninth grade, and I was a straight A student. So you know, I was looking forward to attending tenth grade. When one day the deportation order came to my parents' house, an officer arrived at my parents' house and said, "Me deport." That was it. My education was cut off. In desperation, to trying to avoid found a way to avoid the devastating fate of deportation in labor camp, I, um, life sentence, I found that if you could play an instrument, a music instrument, or if you can dance, you can get into what they call communist song and dance propaganda troupe. If you can get into that, you might be exempted, exempted from deportation and the last sentence of hard labor. So after I was basically, you know, kicked out of school and was not allowed to go beyond ninth grade, despite the fact that I was a straight A student, I picked up a Chinese violin, a two-string instrument called Erhu, E-R-H-U, to play and to try to get into the communist song and dance troupe. I remember I was practicing very hard, like 15 hours a day in the winter cold, my hands were all frozen. But I knew that was my only way to avoid deportation and labor camp. And then something very interesting happened that the communist government discovered in the mid-1970s that, you know, hundreds of thousands of youngsters throughout China would start playing some kind of a music instrument didn't take the government very long to realize that all these students were learning music instruments with an ulterior motive. Right. Really not, really not, was not for music, but really to avoid government policy of deportation and life sentence of all students. So they stopped my uh, music playing. The government stopped it. So then I picked up dancing. You know, it was a communist song and dance troupe, so if I could get into that, with dancing skills, I might still be able to avoid the devastating fate of deportation and life sentence. But that was 
didn't start very long. Communist government destroyed my dancing also. They stopped it at that as well. You know, to put into a perspective, Dong, that these days in America, in Nashville, Tennessee here, it's fairly often when some friends will come up, talk to me, and say, oh, Ming, so nice. You have hobby. You can dance. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have these hobbies. You can dance. You can play instruments. You know what I say? I said, I didn't learn these dance and music as hobbies. Right. I learned it to survive. Yes. Something else that I was just thinking about, again, it seems like the simplest of things, but you were talking about how, as a child, how your home was decorated and how you didn't really have personal things personal pictures you didn't have I mean even within your own home you didn't have the freedom to decorate the way you wanted that your family had you know political pictures pictures of your you know communist leaders and and things like that I mean again simple little freedoms and and again as you say you you didn't everything that you did was about survival it wasn't for fun, it wasn't for, um, you know, this, this might, I might enjoy doing this, or this might, you know, it it was all about survival, it was simply a matter, and speaking of which, you, your mother, very nearly, I mean, she could, she very well could have been killed defending um, her belief in, in, in education and, and such. Um, so, I mean, and, and you lost her for a couple of years because of um, that, you know, that belief and, and, you know, the whole idea of education being bad. Do you want to talk about that for just a second? Oh, yes. Like, uh, my mother was trying to defend her classroom, her research, uh, in school where the communist regard the beat her almost to death. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was um, you know, also accused of being a counter-revolutionary and right. um, almost got jailed at, at, at age like eight. I was right. only eight, I can't imagine. So I tried music, I tried dancing, all failed. I couldn't. Then I uh, learned music composition because with another friend, we thought we could make ourselves into a musician and uh, publishing music, but that was not allowed either. So finally, I was basically had to give up uh, all these uh, attempts to escape the devastating state of deportation. When I was about to actually give up, I just basically knew that was not going to happen. I would not have any future. You know, can you imagine a 14, 15, 16 year old condemned to the bottom of society with no hope, despite being a straight A student, with mm-hmm. no hope? to go beyond ninth grade. And uh, so 1976, two years later, when I was basically tried everything, was ready to give up, when the dictator, the communist dictator in China, died in 1976. So China woke up, right. realizing realizing what a tragic mistake it has made upon itself by having destroyed the future of 20 million young people. So they read from all the colleges, and I remember Dad came home one day, he said, Ming, you might be able to go to college again. I thought I'd never be able to hear that, ever in my life. And I said, did you go back to school? I said, he said, yes. 
I said, should I go back to ninth grade to review? Because three years prior, I was kicked out of school after ninth grade. So in the last two years, I have not been attending senior high school, studying, I've been playing music and trying to learn dance, all to avoid the devastating phase of deportation. And uh, so now I, you know, have an opportunity to go to school. Should I go back to ninth? Uh, that said, no, higher. I said, you want me to go back to school tomorrow, but higher to 10th? He said, no, higher. I said, 11th? He said, no, higher. I said, you want me to jump into straight into 12th? Two years ahead. He said, yes. I said, but even if somehow magically I study three years worth of senior high school material in my dreams tonight and become a 12th grader tomorrow magically, what is my chance of getting to college as a 12th grader? Right. And that's said, very small, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I said, why so small? He said, there are 10 times more applicants. All the students who graduated from 1966 to 1976 for 10 years, when they graduated, they were not allowed to go to college because all colleges were shut down for 10 years. Right. So they were all sent away to labor camp. Now all of them, many of them, all were coming back to apply for college in 1976. So 1976 had 10 times more applicants. It's the most difficult year to get into college. So you've got to be in the top 1 or 2% of the 12 graders to even have a chance. So I said, Dad, let me get it straight. I've been forced out of school three years ago at age 14. Now I'm 17. I've got a chance to go back to school. Instead of going back to the 9th or 10th, you want me to jump three years ahead, overnight, into 12th grade. And then somehow get myself in the top one or two percent of the twelfth grade. I said, "You're crazy." Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, "No, Ming, I'm not crazy." You know, he said, "Let me let, let me ask you." He said, "How how long did the communist government shut down colleges?" I said, ten years, from 1966 to 1976." He said, "Now they reopen colleges now in 1976. Is there a guarantee next year?" they will not shut down colleges again for another 10 years. I said, you're right. It's a dictatorship. There's no freedom. So they could do whatever they want. So that's it. You got it. Either you try to get into college right now, this year, or you may never be able to. So I think the, the point of my cultural revolution suffering and surviving story to America today is we have freedom, and sometimes we take for granted. You know, as I said, some students, you know, uh, have lots of stuff, iPhone, iPad, you know, just kind of taking for granted that they have lots of stuff and uh, they no longer want to work as hard. And some people grow up with uh, difficult circumstances, family and socially, and they just want to blame on everybody else and don't want to, you know, change themselves and improve themselves and... Uh, you know, just want to be negative and towards the rest, towards the world, and it's all everybody else's fault. And my point here is, you know, that we all need to realize how blessed we are here in America, and uh, how much we need to appreciate what we have, the freedom in America. So the intention of my uh, autobiography, From Darkness to Sight, which is um, available now on uh, Amazon.com, with all proceeds donated to the Science Restoration Foundation. You know, the, the point of my book is to encourage especially young people today 
to appreciate what they have and work hard, harder in school today. So back to Chicago Cultural Revolution, so I knew that I have to do that. I have to do the impossible. So I remember that I asked Dad, I said, how am I going to do it, even if I try? He said, this, I'm going to help you. Now, he's a family practitioner, so he basically went to a bunch of teachers, chemistry teacher, physics teacher, math teacher, and the bad, every one of them said, please come to our house to tutor our, you know, 70-year-old son, and in exchange, he's going to take care of those teachers and their family medically for life. Right. So that was the what he's offered. So... One day, all these teachers descended in my parents' house, math teacher, physics teacher, chemistry, all they ready to go. We knew we only had a few months. So they drilled me very hard. I, I studied so hard, like 19, 20, 21 hours a day. I almost killed myself studying. I knew I have to listen to these teachers. I have to listen to my parents because this could be my only opportunity. So finally, I did. I was lucky I did barely did get into college, but I did not want to have anything to do with the communist dictator anymore. So in 1982, with $50 followed from a visiting American professor with enough money gathered together from relatives for one-way, one-way airplane ticket. I was dropped on National Airport, Washington, D.C. with that $50 with a Chinese English dictionary, knowing no one in this country but with a big American dream in my mm-hmm. heart. So my last 30-some years of work, you know, taking care of my patients to restore their eyesight, uh, my hard work has been uh, based on the appreciation of freedom, appreciation of America. You know, sometimes friends will come, oh, me, why you work so hard? Why you work so hard? And you send me an email at 2 3 o'clock in the morning. And I said, I work hard because um, I I used to have nothing. Working hard is a privilege for you. It's mm-hmm. you yeah, you you didn't think there was a time when you didn't think you would be allowed to do this. So now it's it. The other thing too is what you do is so. Um, I mean it, and, and you say this. You point this out too in your book. You get such great joy from your work because, like you said, you give something to people that, you know, they, like one of the stories you tell um, is about the young man who was engaged and had never seen his fiance. And, well, and there was another one, you had another uh, person who had been married for a number of years and never seen his wife. And, but with the, mm-hmm. with the one young man, you were able to restore his sight such that he saw, he was able to see his fiance and his, his bride to be on their wedding day for the first time ever. And, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, just that, has I mean it's worth working for you know um, that's such a, a I, I can't imagine what an amazing job that is. Um, yes, I, I work hard and uh, in, because I truly truly appreciate and uh, because I used to have nothing and I appreciate everything that God has given me the opportunity to go to school to get education and also. You know, sometimes friends also ask, you know, why do you spend so much time to help those who 
are in the deepest suffering, you know, the 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 completely blind, irreversible blind injuries, traumas, and uh, folks who are being told by every other doctor that they will never be ever be able to see again their irreversible blindness. Who uh, those patients uh, suffer the most, and they are giving the least hope among the hope. So the uh, friends sometimes say, "Well, why are you spend so much time helping?" You know. Those folks who are suffering due to blindness, and you spend so much time, effort, you know, donating your services. And uh, my my answer is that I want to help people who are suffering, like blind orphan children. That's our focus, our foundation. I want to help those folks who are suffering because because I used to suffer myself. So is that I can identify myself from, from to, to people who are in the darkness. You know, in this case, physical darkness, because I was used to be in a, in a state of emotional darkness, right. losing all freedom. And uh, I want to use what I can, what I've learned, all the blessing I'm giving in this country to pull these people out of the darkness into light. And that's the main point of my biography, from darkness to sight, is to help people from darkness, whether it's physical darkness or spiritual darkness, you know, to see God's grace to see how much we need to appreciate what we have in America and to see that we can help people who are suffering um, by connecting emotionally with them. What you do is truly, truly amazing. And, and, and again, again, you know, given where you've come from and it just... Every, all of your information, I'm, I'm going to have a link to your book and to um, you know, all the information that you gave me and, and, the, and the story, the background that you have and, and the images and stuff. All of that will be on the show notes so that people, um, because I really want people to read this book. It is a great book. It's really well written and you really do get your point across um, about that, you know, that feeling, that um, experience of um of appreciation and of working hard because it's a privilege to work hard um and and giving back to you know um to people who you know because you understand that feeling so i, I definitely i want um you know i i, I want readers i really think that the, i'm sorry the listeners i really i encourage you to read this book cuz it, it's definitely worth it um do you do you have more that you want to tell about your story, or I don't want to keep you. We've been at this thirty minutes. I don't want to keep you too long because I know you're busy. Um, but um, it, so it's up to you. Do you do you do you have more that you'd like to say, or? Yeah, I think just to say one thing that is, um, you know, we uh, technology science science is so fast developing today, right? iPhone, iPad, all technology transformed the way we live. And when science develops so fast, sometimes it can clash with our moral, ethical, faith principles. Yes. You know, for example, the stem cell research, the fetal tissue research. On one hand, you know, the, 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 the three diseases such as macular degeneration, the aging condition, for which the only treatment has to come from the use of young tissue, we have to use some fetal tissue and stem cell. We have to use young tissue to treat older disease. But on the other hand, you know, as a Christian myself, I don't feel right to hurt a baby alive 
just to help the quality of another life. But yet, what should we do? I mean, if we say no, does it mean that we're going to watch grandma losing sight, become blind, suffering from macular degeneration, an aging condition for which the only treatment for the aging condition is the use of young tissue? So my biography talked extensively about my 20-year 20 20-year 20 journey after I came to America to figure out what is that God wants us to do. Should we or should we not use fetal tissue? to advance research to improve the quality of lives, and what do we do when science and technology develop when it clashes with moral, ethical, faith principles? So I didn't want to hurt the baby, but at the same time, I want to help my patients who are blind from injury and trauma for whom I know the fetal tissue will help because young people heal much better than older people. So okay. I fortunately, I did not give up. I persisted in my research, and I did not want to hurt the baby, but yet I want to help my patients through young tissue research. So finally, uh, fortunately, I did not give up. I persisted. Eventually, I bumped into a placenta, you know, the tissue that got discarded after a baby is born. Right. So I started transplanting the placenta, the amniotic membrane, onto injured eyes. And uh, I found that they actually can uh, prevent a scar formation, can restore sight. So uh, I worked at, on that as I said, 20-year process. It eventually resulted in uh, two U.S. patents and uh, inventions and the development of uh, the world's first amniotic membrane contact lens. Uh, so the, uh, we were very excited to scientifically you know, publish the first paper in the literature. I published eight textbooks and uh, many scientific papers, including one in the world-renowned journal, Nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, But more importantly for me, it's a validation that God does want us to, re- to conduct research. He loves us. He wants us to improve the quality of our lives. And our quality of lives is improved through research. But he wants us to do it in the right way. In this case, Amniotic membrane, the placenta, that's what God given us. He wants us to use that. So using amniotic membrane contact lens, put that on older patients' eyes, enable them to heal like a young person. It's, it, it's a way to do fetal research without touching the baby, without hurting a life. So my point of to my amniotic membrane journey, 20-year journey, which you talk about, you know, uh, detail in my biography, it's it's a testament that science and faith are friends, they're not foes. They can work together. We can guide the science with faith. We can make two work together, synergistically result into one plus one being more than two, not equal to two, but more than two. Right. Today I see the society, you know, society is too polarized. The science, the science can they don't want to have any belief or faith or spirituality. And the faith people, they don't want to study any science. Some of them don't want to find out what's going on with some of the stem cell research. You know, I said, no, the way to do it, the way to advance society is to bring these two camps together. Let's talk to each other. Let's learn from each other. Let's believe. You can be a good mathematician, engineer, without knowing God, but you can be a better one if you know God. So... My, uh, in my biography, I talk extensively about this notion that science and faith can work together and they are friends, not foes. So in some way, I think my biography 
I am really appreciative uh, don't you you know help give the plug to the biography all proceeds of the book has been donated to our Site Restoration Foundation uh, which is a 501c3 non-profit organization uh, for about 12 years now we have helped patients uh, from over 40 states in the United States and uh, over 55 countries with all side restoration surgeries performed free of charge. So um, I appreciate it because the, the book all proceeds goes to the foundation to help blind orphan children, which is our focus, our foundation. That's amazing. And uh, again, the book, the main point uh, are to 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 inc- the points are to encourage young people today to work harder in school by appreciating more what they have in school is to encourage those folks who grew up in adverse cities, adver- adverse circumstances, difficult situations, to say that just because you grew up in negative situations, don't give up. Don't be negative. Don't turn yourself into a negative person. To, to, to realize that being positive, there's always hope, no matter how difficult life circumstances. There's always hope. Don't blame on others. Focus yourself. Improve yourself. And finally, my book talk about, at the end of the day, with a modern society with science and technology, God wants science and faith to work together rather than against each other. By working together, science and faith, then we can synergistically bring people together and move our society forward productively. What I I want to comment one thing on, on the story that you just told about, <clears throat> because for the purpose of my listeners, and one of the things that I try to get across to them is the, you know, you, I am, values are so important. We need to know what our values are, and we need to live according to those values in order that we can be honest and communicate well and, and have positive relations. But, but what I love about the story you just told is that you know, that was your struggle. You had values that, you know, the value of human life, at, you know, like you said, you didn't want to harm an unborn child, but you also wanted to help people that are already here, and you 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 weren't willing to give up either of those. And so even though it took 20 years, which to some people seems like forever, but you just kept at it because both of those things were so important to you and you wanted to find a way to make them work. And so you just kept at it. No matter You, you didn't give up one value or the other. You just kept searching for a solution until you had one. And and now you were you were able to, um, like you said, to to meld both of those and you know find a solution for saving the babies and you know helping the the older people too. And and that's what I love is that you didn't give up either value. You just kept working at it until you solved the problem and and that's what I I really want my listeners to understand is when you know what those values are and you are solid in those values you can the solution is there you just have to keep looking for it so thank you very much Dr. Wang for for taking this time to talk to us and um, and I I hope to I hope to stay in contact and, and talk to you again soon 
You're welcome, and thank you so much, Dong, for the opportunity. Okay, you have a wonderful evening. Thank you, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for spending this time with us. If you enjoyed the content we shared with you, please subscribe, review, and share this show with your friends. Veramore the dating app and Hero Harbor, the social connection tool for heroes, are both in the app stores. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as Veramore, Veramore underscore app, or Hero Harbor.